The Iraq war famously is a result of lies. Wars in Somalia are a result of lies. The Second World War and the German invasion of Poland was a result of carefully constructed lies. That is war by media. Let us ask ourselves of the complicit media, which is the majority of the mainstream press, what is the average death count attributed to each journalist? Uh, Julian Assange at a anti-war rally some time before he went uh, into the Ecuadorian embassy and of course Anton Karras from the third man I'm Randy Credico this is Randy Credico live on the fly it's a um, Mayday weekend special with our special guest Ralph Nader in depth and very deep and long you're going to love this um, episode of Assange Countdown to Freedom. I have uh, Kelly Lane in North Carolina, the engineer, and uh, out west in Lake Arrowhead is uh, Jimmy Sunderland uh, doing the editing. And nobody knows where Anonymous Scandinavia is. If you know where he is, if you can find him, please have him contact us. We're worried about those guys. Okay, so um, I wanna get right to this. I'm going to uh, introduce right now uh, the uh, gentleman who is the executive director of Courage Foundation, which is leading the charge uh, for the uh, defense of Julian Assange. And that, of course, is Nathan Fuller. Tell us what's up, Nathan. Hey, thanks, Randy. Appreciate it. Uh, so on Sunday, May 3rd, is World Press Freedom Day, and we want to bring people's attention to the case of Julian Assange. This is an unprecedented uh, attack on journalism and on press freedoms, and uh, what better day to examine it. So we have a great webinar planned. It's like an online Zoom event uh, for Sunday, May 3rd, at noon uh, East Coast U.S. time. That's 5 p.m. Uh, London time. And it features two Pulitzer Prize winning journalists, Bart Gelman and Ewan McCaskill, uh, formerly of the Washington Post and The Guardian, respectively, uh, and Rebecca Vincent of Reporters Without Borders, uh, who monitored Assange's hearing uh, in the first week of Assange's hearing in February uh, because of the press freedom concerns and Reporters Without Borders has been uh, calling for Assange's release and for the charges to be dropped. So the three of those uh, excellent speakers are going to talk about Assange's case and the threat it poses to press freedom on World Press Freedom Day. Uh, you can find more information at defend.wikileaks.org slash events. Uh, and then on Monday, May 4th, uh, Assange's lawyers return to court when District Judge Vanessa Baraitzer will uh, give a new date for the remaining three weeks of his extradition hearing. Uh, previously, she said, no, we're going to go ahead with the May 18th date but she finally agreed to postpone it. 
uh, Assange is still in prison, remains at great risk of contracting coronavirus, which is already uh, spread into British prisons. Uh, and because of the coronavirus containment measures, uh, he's in essentially solitary confinement all the time and has even less access to his lawyers than he did before. Uh, so uh, it's very important that the hearing is postponed. So May 4th, we'll get a new date that could either be July and August or November, but we'll find out soon. And you can always find updates at defend.wikileaks.org. Okay, uh, Nathan. Um so uh, we're going to, and by the way, Rebecca Vincent is great. She was on this show uh, a week after uh, the hearing. In fact, she sat next to me, as did you and uh, many others, about 22 of us. We won't be able to do that again if it actually happened on May 18th because of the uh, social distancing. So right. it's, it's a long time to wait, and um, it's just another six months of confinement if it's in November uh, that will prolong this, and I don't know. Uh, but uh, good work there. Uh, Ralph Nader uh, today um, will be making his first public statement in support of Julian Assange. Uh, so um, uh, stay tuned. That's coming up. And I, you know, I really can't like, come up with the words for Ralph Nader, you know, consumer advocate, activist, author, academic, lecturer. I mean, it probably got more things. In fact, here more things done. Here's what Afshin Bertanzi said about him. Nader is the man who arguably saved more lives on earth than any other in history. And he says, seatbelts and airbags. And he's probably right. And then I spoke to Cornell West this morning. He sent me this text. Brother Ralph is one of our few giants. He never sold out like so many others. So, We'll come back right after this uh, music. It's John Brown's birthday uh, next week. He would have been 220 years old if he had lived. And uh, so we're going to play, and we're going to play a lot of um, Pete Seeger music today, uh, since it is uh, May Day weekend. Um, we'll be right back with Ralph Nader. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. But his soul goes marching on. The stars above in heaven are looking kindly down. The stars above in heaven are looking kindly down. The stars above in heaven are looking kindly down on the grave of old John Brown. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His soul goes marching on. He captured Harper's Ferry with his 19 men so true. He frightened old Virginia till she trembled through and through. They hanged him for a traitor. They themselves the traitor crew. His soul goes marching on. Okay, that was Pete Seeger, John Brown's body. This is Randy Credico, live on the fly. And uh, I'm very excited uh, to have on this show our sole guest, 
And that is, uh, as I described in the beginning, uh, probably the greatest activist in the history of this country, uh, the legendary uh, Ralph Nader. Ralph, uh, thank you for uh, participating in this program. Thank you, Randy. Uh, can I um, begin by saying, since I've been uh, in lockdown for the last uh, month and a half, all right, it's been very uh, difficult. I'm eating the same food every single day. And then out of nowhere, I get a copy of a book called Ralph Nader and Family Cookbook. This was a gift from heaven, Ralph. What now? Let me ask you, when did you publish this book and what drove you to uh, put it together? Well, it came out uh, April 7th from Akasic Press in New York. They do do a beautiful job photographing in color the various dishes. And it comes out of uh, uh, people asking me, you know, going back to the 1970s, well, you know, you're working on all these uh, food safety laws and meat and poultry inspection and lobbying and testifying and writing. What do you eat? So, you know, I stumble around and tell them, you know, I eat this, I eat hummus, I (laughs) I eat salads and fruits, and I'm pretty low on meat and uh high on the legumes and and it just kept going on and on and uh so i decided well it's time to put it all together and it's really my mother's recipes most of them are my mother's recipes and how we grew up around the kitchen table and she used food as an educational uh thing and and also you know we ate what the parents ate and the parents ate what we ate and there's no whining. And so that left a lot of time around the dinner table for a more interesting conversation. And she was an artist with the food and the the, the wonderful view of the food. She looked at it artistically, not just nutritionally. And she had a very healthy skepticism. She kept us away from hot dogs. And we said, why, mother? She goes, I don't know what's in them. <laughs> oh, was she ever right? Right. So we put this together, and um, it's uh, it's got appetizers, it's got uh, salads, soups, entrees, uh, the uh, desserts, and it's it's basically the uh, Arab cuisine, which is called the Mediterranean diet. And nutritionists all over the world have come to the conclusion that this is a diet that's the best, probably ethnic diet in the world. It's low on salt, fat, sugar, except maybe for some of the desserts. And the ingredients are heavily vegetables, uh, beans, uh, and uh, fruits, and grains, whole grains. And they're very easy to buy in the stores, for the most part. And they're far less expensive than big steaks and pork chops and so on. And the uh, recipes are easy to use. Uh, My mother used to call them... uh, Use your own judgment recipes. So they got leeway. They got uh, uh, opportunity to experiment. And people now in the coronavirus crisis, they're cooking more at home. So this is a good time. I was just reading a column by Jane Brody in the New York Times a few days ago, and she made the good point that people move from junk food and junk drink diets to nutritious diets. They're going to obviously have a better resistance to all kinds of ailments. And so, you know, it's it's too bad that uh, they have to come out in the middle of this crisis. But in a perverse way, uh, 
get, might get even better receptivity, especially with Mother, Mother's Day coming up. And you know, Randy, it's more than just a cookbook. I have a long introduction on what food meant to our upbringing and how she uh, had us eat food without complaining, which is, of course, uh, a great uh, of concern to uh, almost all parents these days. And so it's more than just a cookbook, but it's a wonderful gift uh, for um, Mother's Day and yeah. Father's Day. I agree, Ralph. This uh, I did read the introduction. I have a copy of the book, and uh, it's so well laid out, and, and the photographs uh, of the uh, the dishes. Uh, my favorite so far, being that uh, I have a real garlic-based background, being Italian-American, uh, is this garlic soup. Did you actually have... Uh, garlic soup when you were growing up, is this uh, a dish that was a staple? No, it wasn't. It's actually a, a one of two recipes in, in the book uh, by uh, George Newjame, who opened up a few years ago a Arabic restaurant in Connecticut. And he's now rated the best restaurant in Connecticut. It's in Winstead, Connecticut, and downtown, uh, very accessible. Of course, it's closed now like all restaurants and uh uh he he's the one who developed this garlic soup and i thought you know it was i've never heard of garlic soup until no. until he prepared it for us and and you uh and, and you subscribe to it i mean you give it your endorsement okay let's go to one that i i hope i'm pronouncing this right mamul mamul yeah, yeah Tell that's us about mamul. Yeah, that is a dessert, and yeah. you you have to really have skilled hands to mold it. Um, but you know, it's the kind of uh, dessert you don't want to eat fast because uh, it doesn't come in big quantities, and it has uh, nuts in it, and of course sugar, uh, and and it's uh, uh, baked, uh, and no frosting or anything. It's it's an Arabic dessert. It's a famous uh, Lebanese. A dessert, and so you want to take it in small mouthfuls and really mull it over in your mouth tastefully. Right, this is something that you would eat after uh, a, a, for a dessert after, and I hope I pronounce this right. It's Sheikh Al Mahashi. Mahashi, yeah, that's Tell the favorite. That. That's that's my favorite. That's uh, uh, that's uh, <clears throat> it's called Sheikh Al Mahashi. I knew and, I mispronounced it here. Yeah, king of the stuffed food, and it's uh, uh, it's uh, wonderfully done with eggplant. Eggplant is very underrated in American cuisine. A lot of people turn their nose up, but now with Baba Ghanoush and restaurants around the country, uh, and sometimes supermarkets, it's coming in to its own. But it's a uh, it's a uh, shaped like a boat, uh, like a rowboat. And then it has inside, uh, you can have it either way. You can have it vegetarian, where you have uh, tomatoes and pine nuts and uh, and um, a lot of other things in it. And you can improvise on that. Uh, and you can have it with lamb as well. And it's so delicious. And you can make a lot of them. And so you can sort of cook ahead with it. And it's very, very nutritious. So uh, that's what I loved when I was a, a kid. In fact, my mother gave it to me for my fifth birthday once, I remember. 
No kidding. Well, that brings me to a story, uh, speaking of your mother. Uh, this is, I'm going to play a clip. This is the uh, best story ever told. Long pants, short pants about your mother. Um, yeah. Here it is. One second. One day I came home from school and I was in the fourth grade to my mother. And I said, Mom, the boys are wearing long pants. I want to wear long pants. I said, if I keep wearing short pants, if I trip, I'm going to cut myself. And, you know, in cold weather, it's cold without long pants. And she smiled and said, Ralph, are you worried about being different? I was not to be persuaded. So I unloaded my trump card and I said, Mom, their mothers let them wear long pants. And my mother looked at me again with her beautiful smile and said, well, they have their mothers and you have yours. And by the way, Ralph, if you're ever gonna wanna be a leader, sometimes you have to turn your back on the pack. I never forgot that. I'm Ralph Nader and that was one of my best stories ever. All right, tell us the the the, the whole uh, long pants, short pants story and how it kind of had an influence on you, Ralph. Well, when I was about, I think, in the third grade, I came home and I was whining. And she said, what's up, Ralph? And she was on the phone at the time. And she said, what's up? And I said, I want to wear long pants. And she said, what's wrong? I mean, you have short pants. What's wrong with short pants? We said, my friends now wear long pants. And she said, well, that's interesting. Uh, so why do you have to wear long pants? And I gave her one argument after another. You know, you fall, you scrape your knee. If you have long pants, you protect yourself in the winter. It's cold, even though you have long socks. And none of it uh, got through to her. She, she just batted him aside. So I pulled my trump card. And uh, I said, well, their mothers let them have short, long pants. And my mother looked at me and smiled. She said, well, they have their mothers and you've got yours. What, are you afraid of being a leader, of standing out? See, turn your back on the pack. That was one of her phrases. In other words, today, as well as in the past, peer group pressure is malicious at times. The way the, the, uh, you know, aggressive kids poured on, uh, the rest of the kids and, and force the conformity. And she was very, very alert to that. Turn your back on the pack. Think for yourself. Be yourself. Well, wow. so that had an influence on you then. Your parents had a big influence. Oh, um, yeah, big influence. I mean, once I came home and my father said, what'd you learn today, Ralph? And, and I said, well, I, I learned that Columbus discovered America. And he said, Ralph, sit down for a minute. Columbus didn't discover America. There were many people here when he arrived. What he did do was invade America and slaughter a lot of native people in his quest for gold. (laughs) You don't think that stayed with me? (laughs) But the best one, the one that really stayed with me in classes throughout high school, college, law school, Randy, was uh, one day I came home from school and said, what did you do in school today, Ralph? Did you learn how to believe or did you learn how to think? Wow. <laughs> you know, I didn't get that kind of education from my parents. Uh, but uh, I grew up in the 60s, though, Ralph. Yeah. And uh, I was around. I grew up in Southern California. 
And uh, you had an influence on me and my family because we uh, in Pomona, California had a Grand uh, Pontiac Grand Prix. And as the second car was a Corvair. Oh boy. <laughs> and, and when you're, when you came out uh, unsafe at any speed and you were doing all of these uh, television shows and uh, my father saw that we got rid of the Corvair. I, I feel sorry for whoever bought that car, but you definitely had an impact on him. Perhaps I'm alive today because of it. Uh, but I did get a Pinto a couple of years later, oh. uh, but I got rid of that. The thing was a, was a, a real uh, horror job. That was way back in the 60s, Ralph. Yeah. Uh, and back in the 60s. And, you know, I'm, I, I listened to one of your speeches. I'm going to play it right here. This is at UCLA. I don't, I don't know if you remember this. Uh, 1968, uh, a speech from, at, at UCLA. And here it is. I think that if we ask ourselves, where is the generic power locus in the United States today? The answer will be in the large corporate structure that much of governmental power is a creation of big business. It services big business. Uh, the two could not live without one another. And that the fortunes, privileges, and preferred positions of large corporations are very much a business of government uh, today, not only with subsidies, but tax loopholes, privileges, uh, facile licensing, uh, and the regulatory process which protects so many of them from the rigors of competition. The <clears throat> burgeoning movement uh, of consumerism, as it was dubbed by some uh, deprecatory business commentators, uh, is in effect uh, much deeper than what uh, meets the surface. It goes much deeper. We're not only dealing with saving housewives with a few uh, pennies in supermarkets. Uh, the consumer movement has broadened in recent years to cover areas of product safety, such as foodstuffs, automobiles, and is now ranging to cover the most, uh, the most important area of all, that is, the contamination of the environment uh, by man-made efforts. Air, water pollution, soil contamination, and a whole host of chemical, radiation, and other hazards uh, that are now plunging head-on into the public marketplace an environment with nary a scrutiny for their secondary effects. All right, so um, you were talking about the generic center of power, the corporations, and the biggest threat by the corporations was what they were doing, the damage they were doing to our environment, to the soil, to the water and the air. You were way ahead of everybody about climate change. Nobody was talking about climate change back then. What got you uh, into it? Well, I used to read a lot. I read Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. I, I read a lot about the early environmentalists and naturalists like John Muir, who made uh, the creation of Yosemite National Park uh, possible. Uh, so I was always uh, attendant to it. I also grew up in a town with a lot of factories and a lot of pollution. It was not pleasant. We went to, to an elementary school that was almost right next door to a, a poultry rendering plant. It was horrible. And people would say, well, that's the smell of jobs. I said, yeah, it's also the smell of disease. <clears throat> so uh, I got it early. Uh, at Princeton, I, I studied it uh, as much as I could. There weren't that many courses, of course, but I read a lot on the side. And, uh, you know, when you don't censor yourself, 
<clears throat> you don't have an axe to grind. You can tell a lot of uh, truth, Randy. Right. Uh, for years, I've been warning in great specificity about pandemics and epidemics, writing letters to presidents, writing speeches, speaking out, all ignored. The big difference between the 60s, 70s, and now is the citizen groups then had reasonable coverage, and they reached Congress, and Congress, uh, you know, acted more often. Uh, but now the media doesn't uh, connect with citizen leaders. Uh, they they like to write their own features and get prizes, and they don't cover citizen drives or movements uh, as they did uh, earlier. And so uh, Congress doesn't get that kind of advocacy put before them because they always like to see it in the news or on TV before they have a public hearing in the House or Senate. And I don't think the citizen groups have pointed that out enough. I think they've been shut out. They get a quote here and there, but largely they've been shut out. And it's not that much better on public radio or public uh, uh, TV either. Yeah. And so we, we, that's why history is so important, Randy, because citizen groups got a lot done in the 60s and 70s, the whole environmental, consumer, worker safety, freedom of information, a, a lot of uh, uh, court cases won. But now it's very, very hard. And the citizen groups don't want to admit it because it's like admitting that they're losing power. But if they don't make an issue of this. They're going to be shut out more and more from the public airways that the people own, no less. Well, you know, Ralph, you've got a lot of legislation done. I mean, you're you're credited with the Clean Water Act, the Freedom of Information Act, uh, the Consumer uh, Product Safety Act, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, the uh, the National Traffic and Motor Vehicle Safety Act. And my favorite is the Whistleblower Protection Act. I didn't know you were involved in that, the Whistleblower Protection Act. Yeah, right from the beginning. In early 1970s, the word whistleblower meant snitch, meant a disgruntled employee, you know. And I said, this is nonsense. Uh, whistleblowers are people of conscience, and they ought to be praised and given more visibility and legal rights, because the people who learn what's wrong first, Randy, are the people inside General Motors, inside the Pentagon, inside the Department of Interior, the Food and Drug Administration. And you want to encourage people taking their conscience to work. So we had the first conference on whistleblowing. I mean, the place was filled with whistleblowers, some of whom had lost their jobs, blowing the whistle on corrupt Pentagon contracts, for example, uh, others were whistleblowers on corporations, auto companies, chemical companies, or some uh, on uh, bad labor leaders and unions. It was quite a crew, and we put a book together on on whistleblowers. And then we we included in the book a whistleblower bill of rights. Well, what do you know? You can't believe it. Countries all over the world have whistleblower laws now, even uh, authoritarian countries. Robert Vaughn who is a professor of law at American University, wrote a book on this. And we've had increasingly stronger protections for whistleblowers. Sometimes they get part of the recovery of the fraud against government. So if the government, you know, collects $200 million from a crooked corporation uh, defrauding contracts, uh, the whistleblower can get 10, 20% of that. And that, those now are built in uh, to... Uh, the uh, auto safety 
uh, agency supposed to get underway. The Securities Exchange Commission, they've ladled out over $400 million to whistleblowers. And, and it's still a lot more work to be done. But if you don't protect employees inside these large organizations, uh, you're going to waste a lot of time before the public's alert to various health and safety uh, defects and uh, harms. So they're the first uh, line of defense, and we want to protect them. I mean, whistleblowers from the auto industry have led to the recalls of millions of cars because they connected with the Center for Auto Safety, which I started in Washington, and they carried the ball. So uh, that's one of the great achievements. I really am very happy about how that's developed. There's still a lot of work to be done. The interesting thing is you have liberal conservative support for some of this in Congress, because the liberals want it to protect the people, and the conservatives want it to protect taxpayer money from being wasted. Right. Uh, Charles Grassley supported the Whistleblower Act. Yeah. He uh, was a Republican in the Senate. He's still the guardian of it, 1986 Fall Claims Act. And in the House, Democrat uh, Congressman Berman from California c collaborated with Senator Presley. Uh, and uh, coll collaborated with, uh, uh, what's his name? Grassley. Yeah, sorry. Collaborated with uh, Senator uh, Grassley from Iowa. And, you know, to this day, the corporations have been attacking it. They want to weaken it. They want to repeal it. But it's got too much left-right support in Congress. You know, Ralph, uh, there are whistleblowers in uh out of these um, agencies, the national security state agencies like uh, the NSA, um, people like uh, Ed Snowden, uh, William Benny and others, uh, during the Obama administration, they really cracked down on whistleblowers. I think more uh, people were charged under the Espionage Act by Obama than all the previous presidents since Wilson. You're quite right. Uh, and also, the Espionage Act was not designed to crack down on conscientious government employees who blew the whistle or the reporters that they conveyed the information to. Uh, right. Trump, Trump, of course, is uh, a monster when it comes to any kind of dissent or integrity in the executive branch. He doesn't just crack down on them. He gets rid of them. He fires them. He yeah. drives them out, uh, puts them in uh, useless jobs, scientists, others. And, they just have to leave, and then he puts his cronies in there. Uh, it's a it's a never-ending fight to get people to be free to take their conscience to work every day. Well, take a look at what's happened to uh, Chelsea Manning, uh, and wasn't what she did a a, a major contribution, uh, you know, to the public releasing uh, those. Uh, uh, war logs to uh, WikiLeaks and Julian Assange? Yeah, she was d disclosing a crime, and the criminals put her in jail, and they got promoted. It's the same with uh, other whistleblowers. You know, on surveillance, for example, uh, the, the government under Bush and, and Obama were violating the Fourth Amendment and putting under surveillance with these huge data machines everybody. I mean, they were putting everybody. There was no probable cause. There was no judicial approval as required. Um, and so blowing the whistle on that 
uh, was disclosing a crime and documenting it. And the criminals go after the people who expose the crime. Uh, and that's when you know you have a decayed society, Randy. A society decays when the worst is first and the, the best is last. This, um, this uh, uh, Chelsea Manning uh, Warlogs uh, collateral damage uh, video that was released to Julian Assange, uh, it, it's now taken a turn where uh, the Trump administration, which is under William Barr, is really going after the press. They've made it clear that they don't want anything getting out there. Uh, he's facing 17 charges under the Espionage Act, Julian Assange. What, what are they afraid of? Why are they pursuing him? Because the national security state, which is the foundation of the American empire, doesn't like sunshine. It's like anywhere else in the world. Because they know information is the currency of democracy. Information uh, in the hands of citizenry leads to accountability, leads to prosecution of these uh, uh, crooks, these people who violate the public trust as they take their positions in government. And uh, it's going to be very hard to turn this around because the, the Internet, of course, made it, made it easier to uncover these situations. But... If you see the way the government is collaborating now with Google and Facebook and the concentration of monopoly control over the Internet, you see what's coming. And what's coming is already there in China. Surveillance cameras everywhere, uh, you know, D DNA samples, uh, biometrics. Uh, it just makes Brave New World look like a gross understatement. Never mind uh, 1984 by Orwell. It's, it's, it's very scary. Uh... If if he is because I actually attended the uh, the hearing on his extradition uh, in London uh, back in February, if if he's uh, extradited to the U.S. and put on trial in Virginia, in the Eastern District, which is the, basically uh, a CIA court, uh, what what kind of message would that send, and what does that portend? Well, uh, the message has already been sent. I mean, he's he's suffered pretty uh, harsh punishment. I mean, he's been locked up for you know years in the Ecuadorian embassy. Uh, you can see his health has suffered, and now he's of course in jail in London. His hair has gotten whiter, uh, and you know it's, it's daily fear. Um, the the, the uh, purveyors of empire and domination and the national security state, they're using all the mechanisms paid by the taxpayer without any accountability to go after people who expose them. Now, they have a harder time going after reporters from the Washington Post and New York Times, but of course, that, that, they published a lot of what you know, Assange disclosed. And they haven't reached a stage yet where they can put a padlock on the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, AP, etc. But, you know, don't bet that they're not going to try if things uh, get too hot for them in terms of the sunshine. Well, let me ask you this, Ralph. Why wouldn't they circle the wagons around Assange right now? You know, people on CNN, MSNBC, um, and the New York Times, some people in the Times, but uh, they're not circling the wagons because if he goes, they're next. It, it, it is, you find it strange that they're not supporting him? 
No, I don't, because they, they in effect, um, creamed off the crop of his disclosures, the ones that were, you know, slam dunk documented, but they don't know what else he's done, who else he's in, been in touch with, uh, what uh, uh, material he's put out that might have led to uh, endangering people. And there's that penumbra around anybody who unloads that tonnage of information on the internet. And that's why they, they're just willing to take the very easy documented material and put it in a page one in their newspapers and on TV. But they're always leery about other interconnections and being labeled guilt by association. Well, that's the thing. It's been proven that there has been, especially from Cablegate, when he released Cablegate, uh, showed all of the corruption in the State Department back in 2012, I believe, uh, or before, uh, that it wasn't uh, he who published uh, names. It was actually the Guardian that published names of people and put people in jeopardy uh, because he had hidden all of that. But the Guardian came out, but they bear no responsibility uh, for uh, their error in publishing names. But, you know, he is also, so you have these people in the security state that don't like him, and you also have liberals who blame him the same way they blame you, Ralph. Uh, 2010. I voted for you in 2000. I voted for you in 2000. In fact, the only Democrat I think I ever voted for was my very first vote, uh, George McGovern, maybe Carter. I think I did Carter in 76 against Gerald Ford, uh, maybe against Reagan, but uh, that was it. I didn't vote for Clinton uh, or Obama. I voted for you. So um, they blame you for that, which is complete nonsense. And now they're blaming Assange for the advent of Trump. Do you buy that? Connection? No, no, blame Hillary Clinton. She gave us Trump <laughs> in spades. Here's a, this buffoon, this liar, this fantasist, this uh, greedy, avaricious, self-enricher, and she she should have landslided him. And she played it too cautiously and didn't know how to get out the vote, even though she outspent him uh, by more than three to one. Uh, she's the one who gave us Trump. The corporate Democrats gave us Trump. The Democrats are always looking for scapegoats, Randy, whenever they lose. You know, oh, it's the Greens. Oh, it's Nader. Oh, it's now Dr. Uh, uh, Stein. Wh whoever, uh, whoever they can blame so they don't look at themselves in the mirror and ask themselves, how, how come they keep losing instead of landsliding, losing to the worst Republican Party in history that doesn't even care about covering up its uh, animosity to worker rights, consumer, environmental, uh, corporate welfare, you know, galore, uh, Wall Street over Main Street, uh, corrupt people in the Congress, uh, and, uh, and, and they've been winning. Uh, you know, they lost the House in 2018, but they won governorships, they won legislatures, state legislatures, they took the presidency. Uh, the Democrats never introspect. It's always someone else's fault. And uh, that's why they turned on Bernie Sanders. He's going to clean house. He meant business. And yeah. uh, they're, they're into preserving their sinecures, their jobs, Democratic National Committee. Try calling them. They'll never talk to a citizen group. They don't call back. It's not like, you know, they've been winning. Uh, sometimes... Uh, it, it, it seems like they don't care about winning as long as they stay in their safe congressional seats and can dial for the same commercial dollars as the Republicans. 
This two-party duopoly is a major enemy of any democratic society. And so, the scapegoating keeps going on and on and on, even though the blunders of the Democrats border on the spectacular over the years. Imagine uh, leaving out half the country, not even competing in red states, which, of course, over the years, makes sure it's going to be more red states sending red state members to Congress. That's just one. And the way they were taken to the cleaners in 2010, where with about $30 million, a number of Republican operatives changed enough seats in state legislatures to redline them, uh, to redline them in favor of, uh, uh, of uh, the Republicans, called gerrymandering, and that tipped the scales. I mean, you've got a situation in, in Pennsylvania where the Democrats got about 60% of the vote and 38% of the representatives. That's how devious the gerrymandered. Where were the Democrats on that? Where were the Democrats when, um, <clears throat> in 2000, the Republicans stole the vote and stole the state of Florida uh, to send to the Supreme Court? 5-4 gave it to, to George W. Bush. I mean, on and on and on. Scapegoating, yeah. scapegoating. Wake yeah. up. Well, we face another um, election this year, and as my good friend Barry Crimmins, the comedian, used to say, well, we have an election this year, and unfortunately, somebody's going to win. And so it looks like it at this point, it's uh, Biden versus Trump. Is this a situation like Germany in 32, where it's Hindenburg versus Hitler? You got to go with the old guard guy rather than the complete fascists. Is that what we're facing? Is that is that the extortion that we have to go out there and support Biden? Otherwise, we'll get the Hitler. Well, Trump, you know, uh, has every capability. He's dumb as a rock in every other way. But in terms of power and sensing opportunities to concentrate power, there aren't many people that are his match. And it, the thing that bothers me the most is what he's taught us about ourselves. He's taught us that huge numbers of voters don't do their homework. They vote, you know, on a five-minute hunch as to whether they like a guy's you know, rendering their prejudices, think, th saying out loud what they're thinking. He's taught us that the institutions of resistance, like the, the bar associations that are supposed to stand for the rule of law and observing of constitutional provisions, are uh, piddling and doing nothing. We, we've written to the American Bar Association and said, hey, wh what are you doing about Trump? He's an outlaw president in a hundred ways. He's the most impeachable president. Uh, you know, they're not doing anything. So the, the institutions uh, are looking the other way. And that's what happened in early 1930 Germany. They couldn't believe that this guy from Austria, who they thought was a buffoon, uh, was able to do what he planned to do. And uh, slowly, day after day, he concentrated power, pitted people against each other, found the scapegoats, promised huge contracts to corporations because it, it, Germany was going to rearm, which it did. And before you know it, plus a Riksdag fire, he was in total control. And, you know, we're pretty arrogant in this country. We think it can never happen here. And uh, Trump has showed us that it indeed can happen here. Yeah, well, if it happened in the Weimar Republic, um, which was uh, pretty progressive, uh, it was only like 15 years old when it, it when it was like destroyed by Hitler, uh, 
you know, and a very smart, educated people. But it was during a depression. Uh, we are going through uh, not a depression. We may be in a depression by uh, by November. Does that help Trump? This coronavirus uh, plague and and a possible uh, descent in, into a depression would that help him uh, in, in November? No, uh, that, that's what he fears the most, and he's already developing an early strategy. You can see it emerging which is open up America, forget about the scientists like Dr. Fauci who are saying, you open up too early, you get a second pushback that's more devastating than the first. And uh, and he's already dividing the public as the people who want to, quote, get back to work, go to the theaters, go to the sports, not have to be uh, closeted in their homes. And the scientific medical community saying, watch out. You don't want to push a vaccine too quickly. It may have bad side effects, and it may not be effective. And then where are you? Uh, and Fauci's warning about it coming back in the winter. Uh, so I, that's what he does. He divides and rules that way. And you can see his scheming mind at these news conferences, uh, looking, looking for that kind of opportunity. However, there are too many videos of him saying, I'm, we have it totally under control. It's just like a, a mild flu. Uh, it's going to go away. It'll be a miracle. Uh, you know, day after day, increasing the exponential consequence of deaths and illnesses in the United States starting in January. There are too many of those that are going to be put all over TV, you know, in snapshot sequence for him to try to lie his way out of it. Yeah, but do you think he's going to yield power if he loses? Do you think he's quietly going to leave? I think they may have to carry him out uh, feet first. But um, if he loses, he's going to immediately claim fraud. So the question is, how much is he going to lose by? Um, he thinks the Supreme Court five Republicans will uh, protect him. No, he'll, he'll make a big issue. Unless he you know, loses by... A, 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 modest landslide, uh, like if uh, Biden gets 360 electoral votes when he needs 270, uh, he's going to claim that. You know, he, he claimed that there were 3 million illegal immigrants who voted for Hillary Clinton, and that's why he uh, lost the popular vote. So it's not uh, beneath them to make that claim. However, this is where the, the forces of law and constitutionalism uh, are going to be tested. Yeah, well, it, it's scary. What 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 uh, will we see? Another four years of Trump. First of all, he's watered down all of these uh, different uh, pieces of legislation that you got passed. He seems to have watered everything down here. They're very weak uh, these days, whether it be the in uh, the um, EPA or OSHA, all of these different um, um, oversight agencies. Uh, and then he's packed the, 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 the judiciary, which is really scary, uh, the federal judiciary. Um, what would we what can we expect uh, another four years of Trump? Well, first, if uh, Democrats recover Congress, you know, they'll be able to block them mild as they are. They'll be able to block them, maybe start impeachment. We put in the congressional record through the graces of Congress and John Larson. 12 impeachable offenses, fully documented, and Nancy Pelosi just took the Ukraine one. And that, that may be important, impeachable offense, but most people, you know, 
Randy, don't have a stake in Ukraine, but there's all these kitchen table issues by, uh, as you indicated, refusing to enforce the laws, becoming lawless, unleashing huge hazards, coal ash, mercury, uh, other contaminants, produce cancer, respiratory ailments. And uh, you, you can see already the, the uh, detections of pollutants increasing as he unleashes the oil, gas, chemical industry, and not to mention what he's doing uh, in, in terms of uh, uh, trying to reverse the uh, air pollution fuel efficiency standards for the auto industry. Even some of the auto companies say, what, what are you doing this? I mean, we've adjusted. Why are you doing this? Because he wants to reverse everything that Obama was associated with. He has a checklist. Everything. That's one reason why he took away the money for the pandemic alert office of the AID, Agency for International Development. Anything Obama did, he wants to reverse, like he's a captain, Captain Ahab and the Great Whale. Uh, so he, he is, he's a depraved, sick person, really. And, yeah. uh, uh, you know, the fact that people can still 44% approval after his devastation of lack of preparedness, lack of recognizing truth, facts, medical evidence in this coronavirus. And they still support him, 44%. So we have to look ourselves as a mirror, Randy. It's a failure of the education system, the failure of getting more truth and facts over the public airways instead of giving them up to Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and Fox News. They're all using public property for nothing and getting rich on it. And the progressives don't have a, a comparative media. They don't have a Fox News. And, and they've totally lost talk radio to five of these five of these uh, corporatists masquerading as conservatives. Right. I'll tell you, I was driving up the coast 101 in California and uh, it was Michael Savage and then it was Mike Levine and then it was Rush Limbaugh up and down. That's all you hear is conservative talk radio and they have an impact on, on the uh, they're not going to sway California, but this is the kind of sample that you hear around the country. They have such a monopoly on talk radio and uh, that must really influence voters in in uh, in congressional and uh, presidential elections. No doubt. No doubt. I mean, I, I have no doubt that those talk radio guys were the difference in, the, in election after election. Because, first of all, they're the ones who reached the blue-collar uh, voter, who is now called the Reagan voter. These guys work in construction, working all over, and they got the radio on. And the, the, the stuff is pouring into them. Look at look at these minorities. Look at their ahead of you in the line. Look at all the welfare they're getting. And and, and so they turned the, a lot of blue collar workers against people lower on the economic ladder, which is the classic corporatist demagogue strategy. And uh, and lo and behold, thirty five percent of unionized members. Vote for the Republicans. Can you imagine that? They, this, these are Republicans that want to destroy OSHA, workplace health and safety, uh, producing more cancer and more ailments in the, in the mines and foundries and factories of, of America. These are the guys that are freezing the minimum wage down to such a low level at the federal, seven and a quarter per hour. And that's like 30 million workers making less today than they made in 
1968 adjusted for inflation. These are the guys that uh, are basically destroying the social safety net. Uh, if they, if it was up to them, they'd get rid of Social Security and privatize it. These are the guys that are denying workers full health care benefits. These are the guys that are uh, stopping, cracking down on corporate crime that's ripping off the workers as consumers, and they still vote for them. So that's a failure of the labor union leaders. They don't have these book clubs anymore. They don't have news, labor newspapers. Uh, they, they wouldn't even uh, want to talk to uh, a large audience of their own workers. That's how unpopular many of these labor leaders are. They've gotten very bad. You know, that you're talking about the uh, scorched earth policies of uh, the Trump administration in the U.S. Uh, internationally. I heard you on The Intercept. This is from 2018, talking to Jeremy Scahill. Well, he's the last uh, person to be appointed head of the nation's diplomats. I mean, uh, Pompeo is a warmonger. His statements when he was a congressman were just off the charts, only to be exceeded by the crazed uh, John Bolton. Now he's pulling back and, you know, he's moderating and he has to deal with the Foreign Service. He doesn't want to disrupt any further a shattered or fractured State Department. But he is a part of this clique uh, that's growing around Trump to use armed force regardless of international law or the Constitution or federal statutes. It's remarkable that he and Bolton don't believe in the rule of law at all. It's just bomb them. And uh, we're going to get the Boltons, I hope, but they are kin. Uh, one, uh, Pompeo is a graduate of Harvard Law School, and John Bolton's a graduate of Yale Law School, and they're the shame of both law schools. It isn't that they just pursue policies abroad that reasonable people can disagree with. They are constantly pursuing illegal criminal acts of aggression. Mike Pompeo, all right, he's the Secretary of State, he's former CIA director, uh, I think that this administration really poses an existential threat to the entire planet with these kind of people running these international agencies. Yeah, I call them omnicidal forces. These guys are omnicidal. They, they have no interest in international law, no interest in constitutional observance. You know, only Congress can declare war. And presidents have been taking that authority. Uh, with the complicity of Congress, of course. And they, they basically say we can uh, destroy anybody on earth that we don't like and think is a threat to us. It doesn't matter. They, you know, the president is a prosecutor, judge, jury, executioner, and cover-upper, whether it's Obama, Bush, or Trump. It just gets, yeah. it just gets, uh, gets to be bipartisan. And Pompeo, who's a Harvard Law grad, I don't know what he learned at Harvard Law School. The guy never saw a law he, he, he didn't want to violate. I mean, he, you know, he suggests attacking this and blowing up that uh, and threatening that. And he's Secretary of State. He's not even Secretary of Defense. And nobody calls him to account. And the same with John Bolton. John Bolton wanted to attack Iran. He wanted to attack uh, North Korea. Uh, he, uh, he's a Yale Law grad who, again, is, is totally lawless, a total lawbreaker. And you've got people like Brent Stevens, who used to write for the Wall Street Journal, now New York Times. You know, they pick up on these guys and they recommend foreign policies that are violative of our federal statutes, international treaties, and uh, the Constitution. And nobody 
you know, raises it. I mean, uh, Trump just violated the Hatch Act. You remember he wants his name on all the millions of checks that are going out. You heard about that. Yes. Well, that is a criminal violation. The Washington Post has finally reported our letter to the attorney general because under the Hatch Act, the president and the vice president are exempted under one section because they're allowed to run for office out of the White House. But in the other section, they are prohibited from ordering public employees to use public property to advance their campaign political objectives, which is exactly what uh, Trump did to Secretary of Treasury Mnuchin and his subordinates. And you can't believe how hard it, is, it was to get any press on it. It's like, oh, the president committed a crime? What else is new? This, this prejudgment by the media and by liberals and progressives uh, is self-defeating. If they think he's so terrible and he can't change, then they don't make any demand for his resignation. You read the report after report, Randy, in the New York Times and Washington Post and even the Wall Street Journal, tearing apart the Bush administration, the, uh, the uh, Trump administration, tearing it apart, one detail after another, corruption, self-enrichment, violation of laws, stupid uh, policies contradicting science, full of lies, harming people, uh, damaging the economy, etc. But they never draw the conclusion. Why don't you demand his resignation? Prime ministers resign. Heads of companies uh, are caught with an ethnic slur. They have to resign. Football coaches resign. What's the big deal? Why wait for November that he can corrupt the election? They just don't resign. So here we have one of the worst presidents we could ever conceive in the White House. He's the least picketed president in front of the White House in the last 60 years. Because the, the, the liberals and the progressives say he's so terrible, it's a waste of time. Well, he happens to look out the window because he's in the White House a lot now. And finally, the nurses decided they were going to picket him. Six feet apart, two dozen nurses demanding protective equipment and reading out loud 50 names of nurses who have died in the line of duty treating patients in the coronavirus. And they got terrific coverage. They got CBS. I think they got ABC, Washington Post, USA Today. They didn't prejudge. They said, it's something we've got to do, we're going to do it. Right. The, the, uh, we definitely need more activity, uh, Ralph. Uh, also, just one more thing about Pompeo and, and, and our foreign policy is is the treatment of, of Palestinians uh, and, and cozying up to this corrupt uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who's committed uh, war crimes in Yemen, uh, in Syria, uh, the support of uh, this horrible rogue state, Saudi Arabia. Um, what what do you think of of Trump's policy, uh, Israel, vis-a-vis uh, Palestinians? Well, Trump is a, is a dedicated anti-Semite against Arabs. You know, Arabs are uh, Semites. That's the other anti-Semitism. doesn't get much yeah. attention. But he cut uh, $500 million of annual aid to, to refugee camps with kids in terrible condition, families deprived, which all other private, all other prior presidents supported, Randy, Republican or Democrat. And then he bragged about it in a speech 
to his adherents in Minnesota. Hey, I cut $500 million. Well, if he did that to Jewish refugee camps, you know what kind of name he would be called. And so he, he's constantly attacking Palestinians. He went along with Netanyahu in the White House and give away half of the rest of the West Bank, the Jordan Valley. It's not his to give away, but he went for it. And he proceeded to continually tilt U.S. policy in favor of annexing the entire West Bank. And, of course, he, he he's given Netanyahu a blank check on U.S. military weapons and U.S. aid. And I tell you, this guy, he started this anti-Semitism against Arabs in South Carolina primary in 2016, when right out of the blue, during the debate or one of his speeches, he attacked two two poor refugee families from Syria who had just come in to South Carolina from the violence in Syria to try to make a place for their families. Right out of the blue, just like that. If he did that to Jews, you know what name he would be stuck with. So we have to recognize there is another anti-Semitism. A lot of prejudice against Arab Americans, a lot of prejudice against Arabs, and we we have to call him out again uh, for that. He's getting yeah. away with that, like he gets away with everything else. Well, I do, I do call uh, call him out on that, and I've called uh, just about every politician. I ran against Chuck Schumer. Uh, Schumer's pretty much in line with uh, with Trump on all of this. Um, and yeah, completely. For example, Israel has an illegal blockade on Gaza. I mean, strangling Gaza, two million people in a patch of desert. Medicines, equipment, food, you know, short diet, there's huge anemia among kids in Gaza, uh, nutritional uh, deprivation. It's like the biggest gulag, the biggest outdoor prison. And uh, that blockade is illegal under international law, and the U.S. is supporting it. it, it it's, uh, it's just unbelievable. It, it really is a classic siege. Uh, I don't see it any different than the siege of Leningrad uh, back in uh, 1942. Uh, it's gone on to 41, uh, which went on for 900 days. They really are starving those people, and uh, they're shoot. I mean, it, back in 2014, give an example of these uh, politicians. I um, was running against Andrew Cuomo for Democratic uh, nomination. And uh, before the primary, he had gone to Israel just after they had bombed a number of hospitals and killed uh, numerous uh, women and children. And uh, he goes over there and is hanging out with Netanyahu. He goes to a firing range. Why do so many politicians in the U.S. do that? Well, obvious, because they think that they can get more votes from uh, Jewish Americans, even though a majority of Jews disagree with APAC on one issue after another. But, you know, in Florida, for example, they know how close it is with the Electoral College. So just the way they appeal to Cuban Americans, they appeal to Jewish Americans in, in, in that respect. But it's, it's, it's just a, a, a cruel, boomeranging foreign policy in the Middle East uh, overall. And look what it's done. You know, it led to the criminal invasion of Iraq, and that metastasized in all directions. And then Hillary's war in Libya, toppling Gaddafi, without knowing what was going to happen. She actually opposed 
Secretary of Defense Gates, who said, Hillary, do you know what's going to happen when you have a tribal society and you overthrow Gaddafi, who's already making peace with the West, cutting deals with oil companies, disarming some of his weaponry under inspection? And she said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to persuade uh, President Obama to, uh, uh, to, to go and topple Gaddafi. Look at all these areas now in Africa, Mali and other areas, have been destabilized, weapons coming from uh, Libya being sent all over the place, chaos, violence. That's Hillary's war, and she's never held account for that. She, well, she violated the Constitution. She violated federal, federal statutes. You know, she's as bad as Trump in not uh, apologizing. She, when, when have you ever heard uh, Hillary say, I made a mistake, I apologize? Not she never what? apologized. Not after, hey, speaking of coups, she also supported uh, the coup in Honduras. People don't, uh, yes. don't don't remember that. Her role in overthrowing Zelaya in Honduras. She's totally unapologetic. There were uh, countless labor leaders who were killed uh, ensuing uh, that coup. Uh, it may have led to the mass uh, migration uh, to the north because things got so bad and so scary in Honduras, but she's not held accountable for that. She's a Wall Street warfare uh, politician, and she goes around the country getting uh, applause and get, giving awards. We, we had to drag her to support a minimum wage increase. Of all the Democrats, she was the last one to sign on for a $10.10 minimum wage federal in Congress. And uh, she's supposed to be a, a defender of single moms and, and poor families. And there was something in the Wall Street Journal saying that she was taking her time trying to decide whether to join with other Democrats for a measly $10, $0.10 minimum wage increase because she had to worry about her relationships with Wall Street. Yeah, like her $250,000 speeches with Goldman Sachs. That's what she has to worry about. Wow. You uh, have been an activist. You've been... Um... Uh, you've written many books, uh, you've spoken, you've run for office, you've gotten legislation passed, uh, just endless for, for decades now, Ralph. I, I'd like to know, because uh, you, you just go straight ahead with it. You don't stop. What, what, what kind of, you methodically pursue these aims, and what, what is your secret, and you know, secret formula regarding tactics and strategy when you take on a con? First of all, you got to have cognitive, factual case, and you have to have emotional intelligence. It's called fire in your belly. I never liked bullies from the time I was in elementary school and saw a, a, a fifth grader beat up a third grader. And there are a lot of bullies around in the country and the world, big corporate bullies and their political toadies. And justice, as Senator Daniel Webster once said, Randy, Justice is the great work of man on earth. That's his exact quote. And Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist, once said, power concedes nothing without a demand. Never has, never will. And then there was an ancient Chinese philosopher, 14th century Ming Dynasty, who said something that most people, when they hear it, will never forget, because they know what he meant. And he said, to know and not to do is not to know. And we know a lot about how to create a better society and a more just society 
And we have all these solutions on the shelf because we have the democracy gap. Too many, uh, too many people in this country are controlled by a handful of people, the few, the many. So that's what keeps you on track, keeps you determined, and keeps you reminding Governor Cuomo, who's now talking about huge deficits and budget cuts for education and health, asking him, well, why are you collecting and then instantly rebating $13 billion from a stock transfer call tax year after year? Can't you use that $13 billion? And there are two legislators, State Senator James Sanders and Assemblyman Phil Stenick, who have bills in to eliminate the rebate and use $13 billion for critical public services. When will the first reporter ask Mary Cuomo, when will the first reporter ask Andrew Cuomo, who talks about deficits and draconian cuts coming because of the coronavirus impact and the lack of sufficient federal aid, why are you giving $13 billion back to Wall Street? Yes. Well, you know where he gets his money. I pointed this out in 2014. L Lloyd Blankfein, uh, David Koch gave him money. Uh, Ken Langone gave him money. And so did these other huge uh, Wall Street bankers and uh, corporate leaders gave money to Andrew Cuomo. You know that Madison Square Garden, the Dolan family does not pay taxes on MSG for Madison Square Garden. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Yeah. Well, that's that's part of the problem, this illusion now that we have of Andrew Cuomo. He's been able to redefine himself because you stand him up to this buffoon Trump and suddenly he's the flavor of the month. How did he fall into that? Well, it's very simple. The press is not pressing him. Uh, they're, they have access to him like never before, you know, like an hour every day. And now that he's making the budget cuts that are going to be announced shortly, they're going to shock every New Yorker by their austerity and stringency. Now that he's making a big deal of it because there's not enough revenue coming in, now's the time to open up the other side of Andrew Cuomo, the corporate Wall Street side, and say to him again and again, you got your own fellow Democrats in the legislature pressing for a bill to say, when you get $13 billion back week after week from the stock transfer tax and you re rebate, it, rebate it electronically, stop doing that. We're going to pass a law that says stop rebating except 100% at $13 billion a year or more to the state budget. See, that will then unmask what Andrew Cuomo is really loyal to, which is big business. Well, and, you, you know, know they, they won't even feel that tax. You know, it's, it's a fraction of 1%. And it's for stock, bond, and above all, derivative transactions, huge volume. They won't even feel it. I mean, you're in New York. You go into a store in New York, you got to pay, what, 7 8% sales tax on things yeah. you need in life? And yeah. they don't want Wall Street to pay a sales tax of less than 1%? on these transactions, I think it would come in with 90% support by New Yorkers. But it's got to be made visible, and it's got to get into the media fast. 
they don't want that. Uh, obviously, corporations can't even uh, handle that. Wall Street can't even handle that. And Andrew Cuomo is an accommodator. Uh, he's been complaining about homeless uh, New Yorkers uh, sleeping uh, in subway cars. Well, you know, since he took office in 2010 in de Blasio in the city, the home, homeless population has nearly doubled in New York City, New York State. So, you know, wh who's responsible for that? I mean, they both get a lot of money from real estate interests. Yeah, but remember one thing about Cuomo. He does have his finger to the wind. You remember when he supported, uh, he was leaning towards supporting fracking in New York. Uh, yes. After Pennsylvania started doing it. And the citizens organized. They demonstrated. They proved that fracking would poison the water, that people would get ripped off, that the land would be scarred with debris, and that it wasn't needed. And what did he do? He said, well, we better listen to the science. And he came out against fracking. So he's, he's, a, he's a politician who puts his finger to the wind. You just got to give him enough wind. Well, Ralph, you've always you've always um, subscribed to um, uh, the the uh, possibilities of, of democratic movements. You talked about it. This is a speech from Florida State uh, University uh, in uh, I think 1989, I believe 1980. Actually, I don't know if you remember this. And we'll just play this. Most of what's going on in Washington is not government representing the people. It's government shoveling out billions of dollars in contracts or grants or subsidies or tax expenditures uh, to business lobbyists and business claimants. Uh, if you look at the consumer regulatory part of Washington, it's a tiny part of the budget and a tiny part of the number of government employees, less than 1%. Uh, the big tickets are HEW and the Pentagon, and HEW, of course, in the educational and welfare, aid to dependent children and other areas, um, even at its best, assuming it doesn't waste money, even at its best, it's just buying time. It's just taking serious problems in our society and trying to soothe them a little bit, fan them a little bit uh, with the, the welfare and, and other grant disbursements. Uh, but it doesn't get at the root of the problem which is that the fundamental institutions that built this country are being devastated, the families being seriously undermined, and not simply by what we like to call runaway fathers or poverty. Poverty is a symptom. It's not a cause. Why should there be any poverty in America? We have the greatest wealth, incredible natural resources, a terrific constitution. Why should there be any poverty in this country? So in that speech, you go on to say, why is there poverty in America to begin with? And you, you say in the beginning, you're talking about mass movements being able to make change. You talk about uh, the women's movement in particular. This is about the women's movement and how they started from the ground up in Seneca Falls. It was Democrat democracy in action that brought the women's right to vote starting in 1846. If you think you're up against overwhelming odds, think of those six women in that small farmhouse in Seneca Falls, New York, who started this drive to achieve the impossible with a lot of men and a lot of economic interests against them.
Most of them didn't live to see the constitutional amendment. Some of them saw some states, Montana, for example. But think, just think of what they were up against and how they fanned out all over the country. I remember one episode, they were canvassing in a small town in Kansas, and the, the play of the day was to open the window on the second floor and dump dirty hot water on their heads. We often forget what a street action movement that was and how they were hauled off to jail and dragged off the street where they were demonstrating in downtown Washington. So I have faith that movements can work. Well, the big secret of American history is it doesn't take that much effort to win. You take all the progress and justice in this country, set aside the Civil War. It never took more than 1% active citizens engaged, focusing on their lawmakers or in the courts uh, to win, as long as three things were in place. One, they knew what they were talking about. Two, they reflected public opinion or emerging public opinion. And three, they stuck to it. And so if you want, for example, to, uh, to eliminate poverty, First, you look at Western Europe, you say, they don't have the kind of poverty we have. How did they do it? Well, one is a living wage. Second is universal health care. Third is good pensions. Fourth is affordable housing. And fifth is the ability to have education without going into huge debt. So living wage, universal health care, decent social security pensions uh, and avoiding the horrific debt that people get into and they have stronger unions. So is that too much to hope for in the USA, land of the free, home of the brave? How come we're behind all these countries? Are they smarter than we are? Canada spends half amount of the amount on healthcare per capita that we do and they have free choice of doctor and hospital in Canada and better outcomes, and they spend about 10% of their GDP, and we're 19% of our GDP, with 30 million uninsured and another 50, 60 million underinsured, with over 100,000 people dying because they can't afford health care to get diagnosed and treated in time, according to a recent Yale University study. So I wrote a book once, uh, Randy, a few years ago, a little paperback. People should pick it up. It's called Breaking through power, it's easier than we think. I got it and, in my hand. Yeah, and one way it's easier is we focus on Congress. I mean, so many of the things we want in this country, and that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and others were pushing, can only be achieved through Congress. Okay, so there are 535 people in Congress. They put their shoes on the way we do every morning. And we're millions back home. And if you had 1% organized and, and Congress watchdog groups, like a hobby, you know, people collect stamps, coins, etc. Hobbies usually cost three to five hundred dollars a year, and three to five hundred hours a year. You put that with the one percent—that's two and a half million people in various congressional districts. That's one percent. You don't even need one percent. When we got the auto industry regulated in Congress, with less than a thousand people around the country, because people wanted safety, because we knew what we were talking about. We put the auto companies on the defensive. But 
That's what we have to understand. It's easier than we think. Stop making excuses for ourselves. Oh, the big boys will always win. There's no point trying. Stop making excuses. Poverty elimination should be a political piece of cake in this country. If Luxembourg, France, Norway, Italy can do it, why can't we do it? That's breaking through the breaking through power. This is a great book. I, I remember I, I got it in 2016. I mean, you, you've written so many books. Uh, here's um, uh, Unstoppable. I like this one here. Only the super rich can save us. I guess that was being sarcastic or ironic. That's a fictional book. And it was it's uh, designed to get people's imagination up. And it starts with uh, a mythical Warren Buffett who watches bodies floating in New Orleans after Katrina, and he couldn't stand it anymore. Uh, so he organized uh, convoys of supplies of food, shelter, tents, took them down to the families that were lining the highways. He comes back and he said, you know, I was going to leave a big foundation uh, later after I leave the earth. I'm not going to uh, do that. I'm going to organize people. So he organizes 17 super rich people with enlightened backgrounds uh, and Rolodexes of influence. And he takes them to a hotel in Maui and plans a whole year to turn the country around top down, bottom up. So I, I want to get people thinking uh, what kind of strategies can turn people around with, who, who are doing not good things in this country and clean up politics. And that's what this book's about. Uh, Warren Beatty thought it might make a good movie. I said, yeah, Warren, you, you, you could play Warren Buffett. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, never Bulwark. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I'm looking, there's so many books here. I, I also have Return to Sender, and I Told You So. Uh, which came out in 2013. Ralph, you've written so many books. You've accomplished so much. Uh, there was a, uh, and, and you're always, I know right now, today, yesterday, you're busy at all times, even during uh, this, uh, you know, this lockdown, this plague uh, in this country. Uh, you know, somebody said, well, Ralph, people say that you're eccentric, that, uh, you know, you're a, um, what do you call it? a secular monk? And you had a great answer. The basic thing is I, I've always avoided trying to, you know, develop uh, any kind of jet set image uh, and to focus on the issues. And the media is always looking for a character. They're looking for some bizarre, you know, dimension to someone's personality or what drives the person or was there some great bad experience in one's history and that just has not happened to me i had a lucky choice of parents and and grew up uh, basically thirsting to do the kind of work i'm doing but it is intriguing to find out what what drives a person because you have been so committed you called yourself once a secular monk mm -hmm. that you uh, practice what you preach so you can preach what you practice are you a secular monk I think I was driven to that characterization by someone who had a more bizarre alternative uh, uh, placed before me to recognize or refute. No, I think basically it comes from working long hours on the things that you're concerned about. If somebody did this in sculpture or somebody did this in, uh, in sports, they'd say, look how determined. I mean, can you imagine 15 hours a day learning how to be a gymnast or rowing the oars? Uh, but when you do it in the citizen arena, 
you looked at it as kind of bizarre, you know, driven, kind of uh, fanatical. And uh, we've got to change that because more of us have got to become full-time citizens in this world. He said, hey, look, you know, I just put a lot of time in what I do. You know, uh, Rodin, sculptors, they put a lot of time in what they do. Beethoven put a lot of time in what he did. Einstein put a lot of time in what he did. And you say, I'm putting a lot of time and hopefully other people would put a lot of time because we need public citizens. Yeah, anybody can do it. I, 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 I do. Anybody can do it. You just have to be determined, make it the number one priority, the search for justice. The history is full of great Americans who have overcome overwhelming odds. They started out a minority of one that ended up prevailing. That's how we get more justice in our country. So we shouldn't think that this is a, you know, outlandish huge, intense effort that's required. I think you're missing one of my recent books. It's called How the Rats Reformed the Congress. It's a fable that makes people laugh themselves seriously. And then when they get into the book, uh, they're shown how the people organized to take back Congress from the grip of 1,500 corporations and advance all kinds of overdue, wonderful changes, transformations, reforms, in the pursuit of justice and happiness. And I had to do it because I wanted to do an update on our best-selling book, Who Runs Congress? Back in the 70s, the publisher says, they're not interested, nobody's interested in Congress. So I did the fable, and I think you, you would like the sense of my dedication. I dedicated it to Voltaire, Mark Twain, and then more immediately, Jim Hightower, and wow. some other uh, uh some other uh, satirist who taught us how to laugh ourselves seriously. Yeah, Voltaire. You know, Voltaire, I have a lot in common with him. I drink about 50 cups of coffee a day. Uh, <laughs> By the way, people are ordering this book. Uh, go to ratsreformcongress.org. Uh, they get a discount if they order five. And yeah. a lot of people are ordering five. Well, you know, this is not a time when people read a lot of books. So I'm figuring maybe they're having some living room meetings here uh, on how to summon their two senators representatives back home. You get five, 600 names clearly written with occupation and emails on a petition, and you can get a senator to come to your own town meeting in most states. Well, I did not know that, Ralph. There, another book here that we did mention is uh, Animal Envy. Which, yeah. Tell us about Animal Envy. Animal Envy also is a fable, and it's it, it uh, starts with a human genius who develops a linguistic app so that animals can communicate with themselves and with humans and tell them what's been on their mind. So it, it, mammals, reptiles, uh, birds, fish, even insects are part of this parade of television shows where the animals dissect the human response to them, what human beings have done to them, their habitats, their uh, their uh, uh, their uh, cruelty. And uh, basically, it was an education lesson by the animals. The, the humans were amazed. They would watch in the hundreds of millions this television show that was choreographed by an elephant, an owl, and a dolphin. And, and they were the gatekeepers for who would come on the show, what reptiles and what nearly extinct species would come on. 
And the mosquitoes saw that they were being left out, you know, other insects. So they created a protest parade. And they said, look, you know, you guys think you're smart, you mammals, but it's the mosquitoes that have done away with more of these human avengers uh, than uh, than you guys. And so finally got respect. And the beetles got on. And it's really a, 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 a lesson in the connection between the natural habitat, other species, and Homo sapiens. I, I think, Ralph, that you know all of these books here uh, that you have that are available uh, since people are in lockdown, and they will be. I think it'll be another month. Uh, it's a good opportunity if you're doing homeschooling to get these books uh, and, and read them to your children, rather than them getting the kind of education that they're getting in, in both public and in private oh, schools. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's too bad, you know, all these books come out in a period with the demise of the book and the rise of the screen, the television, the iPhone screen, computer screen. It's really too bad. But this book, Animal Envy, is great for kids because kids, yeah. kids have a natural affinity with, to, for pets and animals. And above that, they have a great imagination. I mean, they would relish this book more than adults just because yeah. of the imagination of these animals and reptiles and snakes and so on uh, telling human beings what they think of what human beings have done to the well, planet it, it, i think it's definitely uh, something uh, a, a book that uh, kids can read uh, or, or they can read themselves or their parents can read to them and i think almost at any age it, it's a very smart book and, and it does uh, uh, really, uh, it goes by quickly. I, I read that way back when I interviewed you in 2017, I believe, and uh, you did this incredible impression of Richard Nixon. Don't do it yet, but I, I, I do want to say, while you are teaching your kids, teach your children well, uh, read this book and other books by uh, Ralph Nader. You can get them on ebooks. They're, they're there, uh, just, uh, or, or you can get them on your Kindle. Uh, but it's this is a great way and a great opportunity for kids to get to learn something that they haven't over the last, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, they, they certainly you've influenced me, Ralph. And I'm, you know, uh, I've, I've, I've been inspired by you. And by the way, while you're reading this stuff, uh, you uh, should get the book, uh, the, the Ralph Nader uh, Family Cookbook. You should get this. You, you make this as a healthy food it's delicious food for uh for you and your family and you know, read the ralph nader books that's my uh, well, that's my advice, ralph it, it won't this. surprise you randy to say i couldn't agree with you more <laughs> <laughs> readers think thinkers read that's our motto readers yeah. think thinkers read and that's the basis for citizen action without which we don't have a democratic society I'm reading right now, Ralph, before I go, I just want to say I, I was thinking about you. Uh, I just was I'm reading a, a book of uh, essays by Ralph Waldo Emerson, and I'm reading nature right now, right in the middle of it. It's like 20 pages, but I just kind of picked it up. And there I was. I was at it was right after uh, friendship or whatever. And uh, what he saw back then in 1850. The the uh, the world that he saw, his love of nature, his love of the universe, his love of trees, his love of ponds, all of that. If he were around today, I don't think he'd be able to write that essay. It would be too dense 
he wrote a, a long essay on self-reliance, right. which uh, some people in philosophy courses in college read. But he said something once about weeds. He said, what is a weed? It's just a plant that human beings haven't figured out a use for. See how profound that is? Okay, Ralph uh, Nader, thank you once again. Thank you very much, Randy. Thank you all right. for all your efforts over the years as well. Yeah, because they're very good. You know, very few people interview like you do. Okay, that was Ralph Nader from earlier today. And we're going to take a quick break and uh, come right back with the producer of the documentary on Ralph Nader, Steve Scrovan. We'll be right back. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll just end it right there. And I, you know, I can't get enough of Ralph Nader. I would have gone on another hour with him. Thank goodness that um, I have more to share with you on Ralph Nader and uh, the documentary. The document you have to see the documentary called "An Unreasonable Man." Uh, we're going to play the trailer to that documentary and then talk to the co-producer and co-director and co-writer of the documentary, An Unreasonable Man. Here it is. One is always right. One is prefabricated in purity. This is Ralph Nader's understanding of the world. The man needs to go away. I think he needs to live in a different country. In the late 60s and early 70s, Ralph would be in national polls as one of the most famous admired Americans. People would write to him thinking that he could solve their problem. Ralph had decided to do six or eight teams attacking different agencies. Nader's Raiders, that was the term that stuck. Imagine if you got in a car and the airbag said Ralph Nader, or you look at the air and it's cleaner. If people would see that on a day-to-day -day basis, they'd understand the effect that this guy has had on their daily life. 
I do think that Al Gore cost me the election. This megalomaniac thought his campaign was more important than the destruction of what he claims to stand for. We don't have a government of buying for the people. We have a government of the Exxons by the General Motors for the DuPonts. I wouldn't want this to hurt his legacy. I don't care about my personal legacy. He wants to be heard. Is that ego? I guess. But it's the ego of trying to make a difference. Okay, Steve Scrovan, my old friend, joins us uh, from California, the um, two-time Emmy winner, Steve Scrovan, who is the director, producer, co-director, co-producer, co-writer of that film. And Steve? Hi, Randy. How are you doing? Uh, I really envy you. You know, I'm kind of jealous that yeah. I know that you spent a lot of time maybe two years working on it uh, and it shows uh, the film is brilliant. And I know you just, it was like a, a labor of love, uh, but I'm kind of envious because you got to spend all that time with Ralph. Yeah, I, I spent um, eight hours over the course of three days interviewing him on camera for that. That was it? That was it for that. And then we've been doing the Ralph Nader Radio Hour for the last six and a half years. So I get to spend a couple of hours with him every week from, for the last six and a half years. So yeah, you wait, should be jealous. Wait a second. So that documentary, you spent three days interviewing him and uh, it's, a, it's almost a two hour documentary. And it's, it's brilliant. You would think that you spent three years following him around. Uh, where did you get all that footage? Well, a lot of the footage is archival footage because we are trying to jam 40 years of history into two hours. And uh, the other footage is basically me interviewing people who knew Ralph and getting the story from them. The movie has no narrator. It's really narrated by the people who knew Ralph and Ralph himself to a certain extent. Right. Well, it really was uh, 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 an incredible uh, piece of uh, business. Uh, that's your first documentary, right? Yeah, I never, you know, I, I think I told you this before, the whole thing started, uh, you know, I'm a sitcom writer by trade. And it's, the whole idea started as a sitcom and sort of morphed into a documentary after I started researching Ralph and was amazed at all he had accomplished in his life and career and intrigued by the fact that everybody was so mad at him after the 2000 election. And that whole arc of how you go from folk hero, which what he which was what he was, one of the most popular figures in America in the uh, late '60s, early '70s, to a pariah. Now in 2001, 2002, 2003. So I looked around; nobody else had told that story. And through my friend Henriette Mantel, who's my my old, friend too, where well, I love Henriette Mantel. Yeah, she she had worked for Ralph as an office manager back in the late 70s, early 80s. And it was through her that I was able to get access to Ralph and the people around him. Well, you just, you just said, that, I mean, to go from doing sitcoms, I know you worked on Seinfeld, 
uh, and to go from that uh, that uh, kind of uh, genre of uh, show business into the documentary genre is a big leap. Uh, did he did he um, affect your politics? Did he influence you? Oh, uh, definitely. I went in uh, not really knowing that much about him, and I had voted for Al Gore in two thousand. So there was this dominant story out there that this guy's an egomaniac spoiler. And so I kind of set out to see if that was true. And what I found was, uh, no, it, uh, neither one of those things apply. And in fact, the only people who ever called him an egomaniac were the people who didn't know him. Even the people who were mad at him, his associates in the public interest world who thought this was bad strategy, they said, well, no, he's not an egomaniac. That's, you know, I may disagree with him about this, but that's a terrible, that's not an accurate description. I never got that from him. I, you know, I, I've been watching uh, him since the 60s, and he's a phlegmatic, uh, he's charismatic and he's phlegmatic, but very amiable uh, type of guy. And uh, it's, it's really an inspiration uh, to see the film and and then to just watch him in action. It, it, it has inspired me. You know, I, I did a, a lot of work, a lot of organizing uh, domestically. And, you know, Ralph, uh, watching him, uh, and I did back in the 70s and 80s, you, know, you just stick to it. He's got this patience and stick-to-itiveness that is rare in, uh, in this world. And I guess you saw that as well. Uh, Steve, uh, we, uh, this is Assange Countdown to Freedom, and I want to get you back um, and, and talk to you and a few other comics about the um, dire situation, not only to Julian Assange, but to the uh, First Amendment. Uh, yeah. Do you have any opinions about uh, Julian that you want to share with us before we actually interview you? On the subject, you know what I would rather uh, wait for the actual thing, but I think you know, you and I came up as a stand-up comics, and there's nothing more important to us than being able to speak freely. And I think our generation of comics, sort of, um, with uh, standing on the shoulders of giants like Lenny Bruce, George Carlin, Richard Pryor, who broke so many barriers and was able to allow people like us in nightclubs and uh, comedy clubs to pretty much say anything we want with any kind of language we want. So that should be prized by all. Yes. Okay, well that's, uh, and a journalist should be able to publish what that journalist. Exactly, exactly. Especially if it's true. And uh, Mr. Assange has a 100% accuracy rate, which uh, it's hard to find that anywhere. Not even in the weekly reader. Yeah, that's right. That's right. All right. So Steve, you can talk about that later. Yeah, we will. Steve, um, where can people access that documentary? It's streaming on Hulu. And I probably really shouldn't tell you this, but uh, it's also up on YouTube. So you can see it for free. All right. Listen, it's a, a great more important thing. that people see it. It really is. All right. It really is a, dying, a dynamite uh, piece of work, as I said. All right. Uh, that's uh, Steve Scrovan, Emmy award-winning comedian, writer, uh, producer, director, 
and the host, uh, or not the host, but the producer of the Ralph Nader Show, which you can get on the Pacifica Network, and I think it emanates out of uh, KPFK in Santa Monica. All right, uh, this is Randy Critical. Randy Critical, live on the fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom. That kind of wraps it up, that uh, 24-hour marathon uh, program that we just did. Uh, and you can go to our website, AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com, uh, to get all of our programs uh, that we've done this year and some past ones, including interviews with Julian Assange and Pamela Anderson and others. Uh, I want to thank Kelly Lane, uh, who is uh, doing the engineering out of North Carolina, uh, Jimmy uh, Sunderland in Lake Arrowhead, California, which is like uh, 20 miles from where I grew up in Pomona. And uh, where is Anonymous Scandinavia? We are looking for you, Anonymous Scandinavia. Uh, if you'd like to support this uh, program, we've never made any money. In fact, we've lost money and lost jobs. But go to AssangeCountdownTheFreedom.com. And I think that kind of wraps it up. We'll play one last um, uh, Pete Seeger tune, and uh, that'll be it. Uh, see you uh, soon, folks, and uh, have a, a nice May Day weekend. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County, there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Tell me, which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? My daddy was a miner, and I'm a miner's son. He'll be with you, fellow workers, until this battle's won. Tell me, which side are you on? Come in here to dwell.